difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. No Genevieve Kosky on this episode, who's begged off to try to watch old movies in a pill-induced haze. But we're happy to have back pop culture critic Roxana Haddadi. Glad you could make it back, Roxana. Thanks, guys. Should I not take all these pills then? Should I not do that? <laughs> Um, we will call the cops on you. Okay. Uh, we're, we are watching you through your window shades right okay. now. Uh, these, I will hold off for now. These second episodes tend to get a little groggy anyway, so I don't think <laughs> anyone's going to notice. So, <laughs> On last week's show, we talked about Rear Window, Alfred Hitchcock's classic thriller. This week, we're discussing a film that tips its hat to Hitchcock a couple of times, including via television briefly seen playing Rear Window. It's a case of hanging a lantern on an obvious influence. The Joe Wright's adaptation of a best-selling novel by A.J. Finn would hardly be the first film to owe a debt to Hitchcock in general and Rear Window in particular. A generation of Hitchcock devotees willing to take the master's suspenses lessons to the lurid and stylistically daring extremes had emerged even before Hitchcock's death via the Italian giallo genre and Brian De Palma and others. Wright's latest tries to operate in that tradition of creative derivation, casting Amy Adams as an agoraphobic therapist who sees something suspicious across the way. Shortly after spending the evening with a woman, played by Julianne Moore, she believes to be the wife of Alistair Russell, played by Gary Oldman, her new neighbor across the way. But is she just being paranoid? Can even she know through the haze of chemicals coursing through her veins? Working from a script by Tracy Letts, Wright piles on one daring technique after another, from flashes of red to swooping camera movements to theatrical confrontations. Is it a continuation of the innovations Hitchcock initiated or an attempt to cover up weak material? Let's talk it over after the break. 911. My neighbor Jane, she's been stabbed. Detective Little, NYPD. Where's Jane? Mr. Russell believes that you made a mistake. You have never met my wife. Ma'am, you all right? I know Jane. Jane's been in my house. I'm Jane Russell. I'm not crazy. I know what I saw. They're all hiding something. Oh, do you mean you will not I've never have my mother? Stop watching our house. All right, everyone. Woman in the window. The critical community has been divided over this film. I want to know your opinion. Roxana, you go first. Uh, I, <laughs> I told Scott earlier that I, midway through watching the movie, realized that I had read the book and completely wiped it from my memory. <laughs> and the movie didn't do much to, uh, to redeem that. So I think I fall on the not for me camp. Yeah, I, I watched it for a while thinking like, you know, this is actually pretty solid. I mean, the, this is well crafted, obviously quite well crafted. You have an excellent cast here. You get a, a series of early scenes that are kind of two-handers with Amy Adams that were quite strong, kind of crackerjack, you know, suspenseful. You're, you know, you're, you're getting some intrigue that's being built up. And then I think the film kind of shits the bed <laughs> in the last, <laughs> maybe in the climax, really. Uh, it gets intensely. So like it's a little silly beforehand, but then, then it sort of loses you 
completely at the end. I mean, overall, I think I'm a little bit, you know, mixed on it uh, compared to some of the more. I've seen actually reaction all over the place. I've seen obviously a lot of pans. I mean, this is a film that has let off a stink for a couple of years before finally landing on Netflix. So there's that, and plenty of bad reviews have gone along with it. But then you've seen I've seen a smattering of people who have been really excited about it and really like the style of it. And I can I can see why. But I, I found myself kind of in the in the middle, uh, leaning against. Uh, wh- what about you, Tasha? Uh, I think this movie stinks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm with you on the the process of kind of wondering. Okay, no, what did people object to in this? It's uh, it's luminous. You know, it's a Joe Wright film. It's it's going to be visually sumptuous in an interesting kind of way. And Amy Adams is playing a character who I haven't seen from Amy Adams before. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to get to see Gary Oldman and Brian Tyree Henry and uh, a bunch of other people I like. Like, what's not to like? And then the movie just goes straight off the rails. I have not looked into, like, apart from knowing that this is a movie that has been on the shelf and traveling around looking for a home for a while, I did not look into the production history or the editing history specifically of this movie. But if you don't count the nine minutes of credits, it's barely 90 minutes long and it feels gutted. It feels like there was maybe a lot more important character work that happened somewhere that somebody just didn't like and cut, or maybe that just didn't work with the actors and got cut. But characters here are so thin and things happen so abruptly and the big twists are so completely out of the blue and and delivered in just the stagiest way. I'm really coming to a point, maybe this isn't anything new. I really like Tracy Letts as an actor. I really do not like his his movie scripts specifically. I think he tends towards the pathetic and histrionic. And this movie is right there. And then just the very ending, kind of the resolution to the whole thing after the big action climax, the way the story wraps up, I was literally taken back to Gilligan's Island. That is how ridiculous I think that ending is. (laughs) And we can unpack that down the the road. Just because of like the water? No, no, no. After that climax, after the whole big buildup, we'll we'll get to the spoiler section later. We're we're still on big picture stuff, but I'm just okay. saying, the stuff that happens after the confrontation is over when we we get the denouement. I could not stop thinking of Gilligan's Island. I'll tell you why later. Yeah, I'm curious intrigued. too. I'd love to be the lone holdout on this because I'd love you know the movie people are describing. Uh, you know, uh, like the sort of this this very basic thriller that Joe writes just. To take into all kinds of crazy extremes. I can see this wanting to be that, but it just never gets there for me. And there's moments where I honestly thought it would almost work better as like a black box theater piece, you know, where just sort of like this woman in her house and a really minimal set and people kind of keep coming in and, and she's, you know, questioning her sanity. But like, it was a case where, where so little after a certain point, so little worked. I mean, it really, the buildup is, is not bad. But I mean, I love Amy Adams. I think she's a terrific actress. And I really, I don't think she ever really had, had all this performance after a certain point. It just wasn't working for me. And when, when that really basic element isn't working, like the center of the film, uh, it's a real problem. I, I wouldn't blame, <laughs> I would not blame the reason this doesn't work on Amy Adams, but she doesn't really contribute to it either. So, uh, I mean, in one hand, it's, it's you know, we, we pair these movies because we find things that remind us of classic films, but it doesn't mean we're necessarily pairing two classics. And I think this is one of the poorer efforts that, that we've had on the show. <laughs> on the show? 
Wait, sure. I didn't think, what you else? think it was worse than Mortal Kombat? <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> Who spoke ill of Mortal Kombat? <laughs> what? That's the, like that the original, like the new. You like the new, the new yeah, Mortal Kombat? I did oh like God. the new Mortal Kombat. Scott, oh. we should have had you back. Yeah, we, we, we should. Show. We should take a, a breath for like having having basically spent our last episode slagging Mortal Kombat. Not our last episode recorded tonight, but our our last pairing. <laughs> I, I know why you like Mortal Kombat because I asked you to write about it, but I, w- I would love to hear for the the people at home who feel jilted on the Mortal Kombat front uh, your your uh, uh, elevator take as to why that's a great I, movie. I feel like we should have like uh, a flashback noise here, as if we were incorporating her <laughs> into the previous episode. I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think it was great, but I think it was a movie that for me benefited by knowing what it was and just sticking to the assignment. And so I thought that the fight scenes were pretty solid. I love the opening fight scene. I don't think you need a ton of character work, and they really didn't give you a ton of character work. But it just felt to me like all of the action set pieces flowed really well together. And I know that everybody was very upset that Mortal Kombat does not exist in Mortal Kombat. But there was part of me maybe that just got worn down by the IP of it. Like, I understand this is probably going to be a franchise. And I thought this was a fine way to update the idea while still playing homage to what it should be. So I really, you know, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. And I think it's, you know, I think the flip side of that is I think the woman in the window is trying to be more than the assignment and that for me is where this movie sort of failed with these flourishes that i didn't think worked for a narrative that for me was very very predictable so i just you know i felt like mortal Kombat was just a little bit humble and i appreciated it for that (laughs) wow expert level steering back into the topic that's that was good uh, can can we we hire you to come back honestly thank you for that because i I don't want to like have to go through other past episodes that (laughs) where where the film that we were pairing with was weak but i will say i think that it doesn't uh, joe wright is a stylist but i don't necessarily think he's compelled in the same way that other hitchcock loving directors are i mean he's not brian de palma he's not you know he's he's not dario argento he doesn't have that impulse to view the world in that way you know he has just the impulse to fancy things up with the camera and make things you know stylish and kind of cool looking i don't think he comes about it as uh with, with any like strong you know artistic point of view uh, i think this is a this is a fundamentally generic film despite all of its trappings despite all of you know the quality of the performances or the quality of the actors anyway uh, who are giving those performances and i wish that it had a take a stronger point of view than it does um yeah, and, yeah. I, at, I, at I a certain point my point of identification became wyatt russell's character who was just annoyed constantly <laughs> and wanted yeah. to be, be somewhere else that was kind of where my head was at too I feel like a lot of the material around the big mid-film turning point reveal is making decisions, is, you know, trying to sell this movie as, as something way, way more and far more imaginative and, and creative and wild than the rest of the movie is. And it just feels super out of place because there's so little lead up for it and so little follow up to it. You know, it goes to a very stagey place, like literally physically stagey, where we keep seeing characters who feel like they're framed by a proscenium 
standing arrayed in a very stage-like space and the camera is on one side of them and then on the other side of them looking back and forth to switch points of view and it it feels like somebody was trying to take the idea of a proscenium and sell the idea that cinema can go on both sides of the stage and do theater in the round without the complications that would be involved in doing that on a stage and it just doesn't fit the rest of the movie. And then what she sees in that moment as a, a sort of image of everything that's being revealed is just kind of laughable in its absurdity. I, I think it's meant to be a big emotional moment, but I, I literally did laugh out loud. I think what I liked about what Scott said in terms of viewing the world is I just thought that this movie didn't do a good job for me, at least in building a sense of place. Like we have that very long opening pan of her brownstone and like the beautiful stairs up and they talk about like how crummy her place is. I was like, still looks pretty nice. But like, you know, we, I think you have that shot. And then obviously we see her watching across the street, but it didn't have any sense of like fluidity or real world building or development or any sense to me of putting her tangibly in New York and tangibly in a neighborhood that she is terrified of becoming a part of. And I think clearly because she's agoraphobic, we're trying to do some intimacy in terms of her being afraid of leaving. And so, yes, there are these very tight shots of her in her apartment, being afraid to go out. But I just, it felt like everybody was sort of floating in space and that it didn't feel grounded by anything. And so that made each subsequent reveal, I think, increasingly unimpactful for me. Again, it feels like it's in a stage rather than in a city. Mm -hmm. That's a Joe Wright problem. I mean, I guess Tracy Letts is probably writing it that way. He's, he's a playwright. It's going to be Joe Wright's job to break it out of that a little bit and he doesn't do it that successfully. It's weird how I how little I remember of this movie. Because <laughs> 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 I watched it right back to back the same night as uh, Rear Window. And obviously I'd seen Rear Window before, but like so many moments, characters, details from that movie just pop. And in this one, it's just like, it feels like this soup that does it, you know, and it is, again, so generic that you're just, you're looking for some parts of it that are going to stand out something you know and you, you have the performers feasibly to make that happen these are all first rate actors like up and down that cast i mean you know amy adams is great gary oldman has been i, I mean i don't like his performance here but you know he's certainly given plenty of fine ones in the past white russell is somebody who i really love from from lodge 49 and, and is kind of a promising actor julianne moore is obviously julianne moore i mean there, there, there are opportunities for these actors given the space that they have to make a deeper impression than they do and there's opportunities just as a stylistic exercise for joe wright to make a, a deeper impression than he does but um it doesn't have that flair to it you get the falcon Anthony and the foe. Oh, i was gonna say yeah. you get the falcon and the foe winter soldier as uh, the foe uh, captain america in this one as well like You're anthony right. mackie really gives his all to a performance where he's we know nothing about him he's on screen for about two minutes but he really puts a passion into that character he cares about what that character's inner life is seemingly in a way that the movie does not i don't think the movie cares about anybody's inner life I mean, I don't think that there's depth to really anybody here, especially the people that 
Amy Adams' character is suspicious of or investigating. I mean, I don't think we have any sense of who they are. And at a certain point, you kind of think like, okay, do you need an inner life when you see somebody potentially be murdered? I mean, I think yes. (laughs) (laughs) I still think we sort of needed some sense of what was happening there. But I think because the movie revolves essentially around like two shocking reveals they sort of in my mind wipe out and then just it's a wash in terms of being shocked i think the only performance i liked is the uh the kid who plays ethan and mainly just because that felt to me like a vintage michael pitt role uh, <laughs> wow i can so yeah. see that i thought that yeah. was a rough a rough performance actually but uh <laughs> it's definitely vivid that's for sure yeah. Well, before we move on to connections, I, I think we should get into the reveals because this is a movie that seemingly turns on what's meant to be the humongous shock value of, mm. of what's truly going on. Did either of those reveals land for anybody here? Well, we'll say which ones they are. Let's just say we're in spoiler territory here. Okay, we're in full spoiler territory. Uh, skip ahead a bit if you don't want to hear this. But uh, essentially, Amy Adams looks out her window. She sees, she believes somebody murdered. She believes it's Julianne Moore, who she just hung out with. Gary Oldman comes over and says, no, the, you did not see my wife murdered. Here's my wife. And presents Jennifer Jason Lee. She keeps trying to report it to the police. And the police just kind of say, yeah, but your family's dead. And it turns out that the husband and daughter that she's been talking to on the phone throughout the movie have been dead all along and that she is, uh, you know, her agoraphobia comes from trauma. Uh, she's mixing alcohol and pills and definitely hallucinating because in that moment where they confront her, she re-experiences the car crash where her husband and daughter die, which was precipitated by the exposure of an affair that she was having. She blames herself very clearly. And then she pauses in the middle of the cops confronting her with her family's past death to stare at a wrecked car covered with snow sitting in the middle of her living room. And that is the reveal that I laughed at, uh, or really the staging yeah, of the reveal image, I laughed Tasha. at. It is it's a neat me. image. It's just so anomalous to what the rest of the movie is. It's Joe Wright. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully lit. The effect of the snow slowly drifting down over this car, the, the single wheel still slowly turning after the wreck. It's beautiful, but it's anomalous in the weirdest sort of most surreal way. I just thought it was too literal. I mean, I just, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, to, that's the car. Okay. Have, have, <laughs> crashing, cra- having having this uh, tr- trauma literally crash into her uh, apartment. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I thought it was very much like, hey, you saw that thing? Here's what caused it. The only thing that caused it. Um, and yeah, it just felt very much like A to B and then to C. So then the second reveal, Tasha, I'm sorry, I interrupted you from the second reveal. No, I wanted to take a pause uh, to to react to that first reveal. But uh, does anybody else want to explain the second reveal? Roxana, I'm looking at you. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, Amy Adams is like, oh, yeah, my family's dead. My bad. And um, (laughs) then so the cops are like, please leave this family alone. You're clearly just like losing it. And so she sort of accepts that maybe she is losing it. And then um, she can't produce any evidence of the first wife that she met, played by Julianne Moore, until she is going back through her phone and looking at pictures. And she sees a reflection of this woman's face. She speaks to Wyatt Russell's character. 
And he's like, oh, yeah, I had a one night stand with her. I don't know what her deal is, but like she was weird and like I ghosted her. <laughs> so this woman exists. And then we learn that she was the biological mother of the son of this family that Amy Adams has been harassing, stalking, watching. And she had sort of a weird sort of uh, friendly relationship with the son who comes over and reveals that he killed his biological mother. He is trying to kill Wyatt Russell's character. And now he is also going to kill Amy Adams and they have a, chase and fight scene it is pretty gnarly when he puts the garden tool through her face that was impressive um (laughs) and then um she pushes him through her skylight he dies and uh in the final moment brian tyree henry is like our bad Shockingly, the NYPD was bad at their jobs. And um, then has this, like, you know, walking through the brownstone and, like, being at peace and saying goodbye to their memories and leaving. So things are going to probably be fine for her. Yeah, she's going to be totally okay. This was no big deal. And uh, she's going to move on with her life. I would never sell, ever sell don't sell it's called it's called aversion therapy i think right yeah kind of right get right in into into the action when you're Mm -hmm. agoraphobic you kind of go outside and you know you might take a something to the face or what it's like it's not a hoe it's not a hoe it's like a cookie type mini rake something like that it's like a a hand rake rake. yeah No, no, it's a tool. That's, that's a real what? thing, right? A hand rake? Yes, it is. <laughs> no, that no. is that is absolutely a real gardening. It's a real okay. thing. All right, all right. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you would it's, not it's want like one a, to the face. No, you. No, wouldn't. it looked bad. It looked really bad. Uh, but I, I kind of liked it when <laughs> that suddenly the movie just kind of gives up and turns into like one of those like nineties thrillers that it just goes ha- real that, primal that, fear real quick it, it, right it just like they have to. It just has to end that way of just this this absurd action packed kind of gross violent finale in in the pouring rain that's the yeah that doesn't seem like the uh smartest and most suspenseful way of of doing it again a little falling short of the standard set set by uh rear window uh, by (laughs) alfred hitchcock that moment but uh i don't know you know there's there's a strong theatricality to it as we've talked about in that the, the car being in the house with the snow that feels like something you would actually kind of put on a stage if you had a had a little money to do so the way that these characters sort of stand in tableau when they're all together that again also felt like it was something strikingly of the stage but i think when you do it that way that you you do sort of crave a certain cinematic brio and want it to exist stronger as a as a film uh, which uh, um, i guess this does not by and large I guess I just felt like it was wasted on this story. Maybe that's whatever. I don't care if it's unfair. I just thought that the story was not interesting and that the character arcs were not interesting or particularly revealing. So I can appreciate sort of bringing that theatricality and this like very performative quality to a movie that in my mind, like deserves it quote unquote, but I guess and maybe it's unfair to say that the story was predictable because, hey, in Rear Window, the guy does end up killing his wife. But I think it's just Rear Window has so much more 
there there and so much more context and inner life and world building and all the stuff that you watch movies for and all of that felt lacking here i mean i watched it yesterday and i still could not tell you why ethan kills his birth mother you know it's like it's just it didn't stick in my brain it feels like we're inching into connections territory so we're going to take a short break here and actually connect the dots explicitly between the rear window and the woman in the window i've been slipping slipping on my meds Drinking. Getting into a really dark frame of mind, and I'm not sharing that with you. That's a hard thing to admit. Well, it feels good to say. And to hear. I don't think that the yellow man is good for me. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you're hallucinating, no. (laughs) And there's a mania, too. I just really needed to be at the center of something. So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common of which I think there are a few. Why don't we start with the most obvious ones? These are films about voyeurism and looking where you're not supposed to be looking. I never really get the sense that in The Woman in the Window, Amy Adams' character is is compelled to look uh, look out into her neighbors and, and, and by the same impulses as Jeff in Rear Window. Am I am I off there? You're I don't off. think you are. I I think no. what Roxana was saying about the the lack of inner life and the lack of arcs here is really kind of more centered on her than than anything else. I think that she has a hunger for the outside world that has kind of been denied to her by her own trauma, her own post traumatic stress disorder, and it's less about living out the lives of all of these other people on on her street and just more about she has nothing else to look at. Uh, she she can't go out into the world. And so she does what she can, which is look out the window. And there's a, sort of a vague attempt in the movie, I think, to make it a little more complicated in a, a rear window kind of way with her interactions with her psychiatrist. But uh, for the most part, it's like, while I'm looking, it, it honestly feels a lot like she's looking out the window in order to kickstart the plot, as opposed to for all of the complicated and rich reasons we discussed that uh, Jeff was looking out the window and rear window. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't get a sense that she has watched enough of the outside to like know who these people are. Like, we do have the opening conversation with the psychiatrist where he like asks her. Like, well, what's going on with so-and-so? What's going on with so-and-so? And And she sort of lists these things that she had seen or watched. But again, in terms of like a movie, I wish we had seen those things. I wish we had seen her looking at these people or sort of getting meddled in the behavior of other apartments around her. I mean, established to me that she is actually interested in this stuff. And it just doesn't, it doesn't really do that. Aside from yelling at trick-or-treaters, that's really. 
That well, was, I, think, I think the f- film is more internally direct, or at least inten- it intends to be, that it's about mm-hmm. not her compulsion to look at and experience and you know, other people's lives or, or get a charge from other people's lives, but her dealing with her own perception and misperception and hallucinations and sense of reality. I mean, that that's kind of... So, so the film is more internally directed and in, in, in what she ends up seeing is just one of several different inputs that she's having to grapple with and, and as she struggles to get a very basic grasp on reality. That's fair. Although then that raises the question of, I wish Wyatt Russell's character hadn't been real. Mm-hmm. It feels like any of these characters could, almost couldn't have been real. Like I, I thought maybe the, uh, Tracy Letts as a psychiatrist wasn't a real character for a while mm. either. So mm-hmm. the, in the way, I mean, it kind of feels that way even before the big reveal to the point where, you know, when you find out her family is, is dead, it's like, oh, okay, that tracks with the rest of the film. Yeah. Would, would you want that? I mean, would you not feel annoyed if the film pulled that off, tried to pull that off? I think off, I though? would be annoyed regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm trying to amp up my own annoyance. I'm trolling myself at this point. <laughs> what if one of these characters was not real? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if that would help. That doesn't sound like I think it would mechanically help. the story can't work if Wyatt Russell isn't real, just because of, of his interactions specifically with fake wife number one, effectively. There's information that you can't yeah. get any other way. Yeah. But there's also to some degree I yeah. I kind of feel like in this in the same way that we kind of feel like maybe Grace Kelly is the secret protagonist of uh, rear window. I, I kind of feel like Wyatt Russell's character may be the secret protagonist of the woman in the window. There's just sort of a sense of like he gets a really raw deal. Like the the moment where she yeah. throws him fully under the bus uh, in front of the cops, just completely and utterly eviscerates him for no reason and with really virtually no impact. Uh, I, I actually had to pause the movie. I, I just I had a moment of. I don't like this woman. I don't like what she's doing. I don't like how she treats people. And I've never liked her less than in this moment. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of of Jimmy Stewart, where, where, uh, you know, never mind, you know, Amy Adams' natural appeal, you're not as forgiving of her. I mean, you know, I'm not not sure you're necessarily, I I don't want her to fall victim to a murderer, but whether or not she ends up with a happier life than she begins the movie is not really a pressing concern for me when I'm watching this. I actually find that an an element of the film that I appreciate. I okay. mean, I like I I like to have lead characters who are who I don't automatically think are great. I mean, I, I like that she makes decisions that are that are wrong and that are destructive, and and um, you know that that adds a complexity to uh, the character that works for me and is actually is a distinguishing factor from rear window it's like one part where this film has is doing its own thing and and um i wouldn't say doing it well but at least uh i think you i think you could do a version of this character who is purely heroic or like or an innocent victim or something like that but but there are things that she there are decisions that she uh makes that are terrible decisions and that are harmful decisions and and um I, i like to have characters like that at the center of Hollywood movies because it's kind of rare to see see them like that. We're supposed to like the people that that are at the center of movies. I mean, is that her moment of uh, 
Jimmy Stewart not getting involved in the choking incident. I mean, you know, it is one of those things where she is an asshole in that moment. And I don't think we can explain it or whatever, but I do think there are hints earlier that she has the propensity to be like that. And I'm thinking about that scene with Julianne Moore, where they're both weirdly sort of aggressive and standoffish and challenging with each other. Suddenly Julianne Moore is in her house, and then a few minutes later, they're not friends necessarily. But it seems like they sort of recognize qualities in each other that allows them to sit down and shoot the shit for a couple of hours. Like, I don't necessarily think either of them is a quote-unquote good person, but I think they sense something similar in each other, and I think that's part of what makes Amy Adams's character so intent on finding her. And I did find that part of it interesting. I think those scenes, I think that's that that long scene and then that first long scene with Ethan. I mean, I think I think a film gets off to a reasonably promising start mm-hmm. because he's you know and i like the fact that it takes as much time as it does with these scenes too i mean um again a very theatrical thing to do this is maybe tracy let's doing tracy let's let's things by by allowing these scenes to be longer than you might expect in a movie like this but uh but i thought that's when it was good and it was kind of pure in that sense it wasn't so mucked up by all of the psychology and all the the twists and all the stuff that comes later that doesn't prove beneficial to the film overall that you know you just get you just are intrigued you know and then the, the performance and the actors are given plenty of room to work and you're left with a lot of interesting questions yeah i think those two early relationships those two early encounters between anna and ethan and between anna and fake wife one are the most interesting things that happened in the movie Maybe because they're the ones where there are the most undercurrents, like complicated undercurrents about what Anna wants and what Anna feels a need to do and kind of watching her her desires evolve. Like she clearly does not want to let Ethan in when he first arrives and she clearly graduates towards a protective stance over him that may come out of her past as a a child psychologist. And she clearly has kind of a desire to get involved and a desire to not get involved, a feeling that she can't get involved, that it's overwhelming. Like all of these things are, are buried there and it's maybe more nuanced than anything else in the film. And when fake wife one shows up, there's a similar sort of complexity of like Julianne Moore can play a very off-putting character when she wants. And that character is richly complicated in terms of the the weird, like jangling, unpleasant signals she's putting off. And at the same time, kind of the charisma. And, and I feel like that conversation that they have is just kind of a little bit full of, please get out of my space. I don't know what to do with you. Combined with, you won't get out of my space. And I find that kind of a relief because somebody is spending time with me, which is really kind of what I need more than I need to be left alone. It's pretty complicated. And it's, as you say, it's a pity it doesn't add any nuance or complexity to the rest of the film. That feels a little bit like a rear window connection to where the protagonist is someone who would see nobody if people didn't kind of force their way in. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think... Also, it's one of those things where in the beginning, in that conversation with Julianne Moore, I thought she was casing the joint because I had like forgotten everything. 
that happens in the book. I was like, what's happening? Is this like a home invasion sequence? Like, what's going to go down? But yeah, it, in a way, it is a home invasion sequence because everybody is invading her space. And that's why I think also that I, I sort of wish that I sort of wish there had been more to her character's relationship with Riot Russell's character because he almost to me takes the space of like the insurance nurse and that like he's here. They wouldn't necessarily be like friends if the situation hadn't brought them together, if he wasn't her tenant. And there is some sort of like weird lines of responsibility between the two of them. So then when she does throw him under the bus, I of course hated her for that but it also felt like an illuminating moment in terms of like okay so you would still do this to somebody who is close to you so what are your boundaries in terms of who you would sort of betray to protect yourself and who you wouldn't betray so it's like in talking about it like i almost think the character is more complicated than i initially thought while watching it but i still don't think i like it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i think it's interesting that the action of woman in the window like the the entire story we don't know what their relationship was like we don't know why she had the affair or who with we don't know where that person went when she underwent her huge trauma and became shut in all that kind of goes under the bridge as if it's not important And it feels like it would be one of the most important things in her life, what she did about that relationship, where it came from in the first place, how it resolved. And it's just one of many things that the film is is profoundly uninterested in. It's just just saying it for the sequel, Tasha. That's uh, it'll be the next next entry. Woman out of the window. (laughs) I I think that takes us. What's the fear? What's the fear of going inside? (laughs) <laughs> if you're agoraphobic, then you have to have the movie where you just don't ever want to go indoors. Claustrophobic. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, more or that less. is that is actually the opposite of true. agoraphobia. I'm not in that place. Oh, that place is huge. That no, is huge. Uh, in fact, in that place. the uh, the sequel where she's claustrophobic uh, may involve her rebuying that place because it's so huge and and spacious. Big. It doesn't it's give a big room. Dump. It's one of those just <laughs> dumpy places. Oh come on! Whatever want I live in. It's gorgeous. In New York. I would live there uh, along with four hundred yeah. other people. I it, it was amazing. It I'm... reminded me of that. Reminded me of that incredible house in Panic Room. It's kind of like a downscale version of that amazing space that that uh it's a it's a fin- joe right beautifully like, in panic room warmly lit version of that as opposed to a david fincher searly lit uh version but true. what what i'm what i'm trying to drive us in the direction of is i think the movie's complete disinterest in why their relationship broke up what that relationship was uh, what, what came out of it is part of these these two movies both have kind of habits of giving us incomplete information and leaving us to fill in uh, a bunch of the blanks. And I think it's really telling that we spent so much time with Weir Window kind of trying to discuss what we're not being told about Jeff and how we we differently filled in that information. What Hitchcock is trying to tell us versus what he's not telling us. All of the stories that we get information about from the the tenement inhabitants, while still missing some pretty basic information about uh, the the central relationship, I think that's a really rich text that we wanted to talk about a lot. Whereas here, I don't see us spending twenty minutes discussing the nuances of Anna's feelings towards her husband, towards White Russell's character, towards pretty much anybody. There's a lot of information missing in both. But in one case, it it feels 
like a deliberate tease for the audience. And in the other case, it just it literally feels to me like 20 minutes was cut out of that movie. I felt I, I found myself wondering more about things like what was the deal with the basement? I mean, he was her tenant, but did did she could she could just go down there anytime she liked? Did, did they have like a common space? Did he have a private entrance? I, I, probably not things I should have been thinking about watching this movie. I, I was thinking about the thing. private. I was totally thinking about the, the entrance thing because you know how how do you even you know, get private entrance to a basement? It's a basement. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's know, not that's not like, true. Is it, Plenty of places have uh, private entrances to basements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Houses okay. all the time. My basement has a private entrance, but it's like, it's under it's underneath the ground. It's exclusive. It's know. exclusive. Not everyone's allowed inside that entrance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, that, wait. Are, are are you saying you've got Wyatt Russell down in your basement right now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I will hold him until the next season of Lot Forty Nine gets approved. <laughs> they reverse the cancellation. Um, yeah, I definitely thought more about the layout of that house than uh, the plot of the story <laughs> but um yeah i mean i think even if they had spent like 10 more minutes five more minutes a couple more scenes of her watching across the street to get like a better mm-hmm. sense of what their family dynamic was but to have her individually meet people you're still not getting a sense of like how that family works together or obviously because julianne moore shows up out of nowhere it would almost be more interesting to me if she saw jennifer jason lee and then saw julianne moore and they're styled similarly they look somewhat similar and so then she's also in on the did i see the same woman or did i see different women but it just felt like there was so much of that early establishing stuff that the movie just wasn't interested and showing us and something that i also like could not quite tell and this is just something i guess specific to how i watch movies in general is like i couldn't tell if this movie was actually interested in like her experiences as a woman and what that part of her was i mean like she was a wife she was a mother but we don't know about her relationships with her husband or her relationship with her daughter we don't really get a sense of yes she was a child psychiatrist what kind of things did she do i mean they're sort of like you specifically are making her the woman in the window who is watching another woman in the window but it didn't feel like there was any particular like gendered insight that came from that yeah, I I really do love the who's crazy here subgenre, and yeah. I I may bring up uh, one of those during uh, your next picture show. Bunny Lake is missing is still one of my all time favorite movies, but movies like Bunny Lake is missing and Hitchcock's Lady on the Train and Flight Plan all do kind of deliberately put a woman in that that situation of, well, is she just crazy? Is she just histrionic? Is she just hysterical? And it has to do very specifically with the way uh, women's emotions and women's concerns are generally, culturally have been considered overwrought and too emotional and unreliable. And one of the reasons Rear Window just doesn't go in that direction at all is because uh, it's a male protagonist. You notice that the women in his life I actually think it's hilarious how quickly uh, Thelma is like, yeah, he probably murdered his uh, his wife and here's how he did it. Here are the gory details that I'm imagining and here's what we can do about it. Nobody really spends too much time. You know, his his old army buddy who's a detective 
is is like, all right, well, where's your proof? But spends relatively little time uh, dismissing him as like a dilettante who is maybe hysterical and uh, should just calm down. The movies that are about people's response being calm down, you're hysterical, you're unreliable. They, they always have women protagonists. And this is just, you know, kind of part of that series. That's interesting. I think what one of the things that I mean, we should probably talk about is just explicitly its relationship with Rear Window in Hitchcock. I mean, this is clearly a prime influence. I mean, there's a scene, as Keith mentioned in the intro, from Rear Window that she watches. She watches a lot of pretty good old movies on her TV. Including including Spellbound, um, the Hitchcock film yeah. Spellbound, which which involves a dream hallucination sequence. And I, and I kind of like the way those... Uh, sequences are framed you know with the the images from the tv are so overwhelming and kind of surreal but um you know i think i think we got into it a little bit but like what's surprising is just how despite just the superficial similarities in certain plot points like just that observation of a murder that she witnesses or in the murder that jimmy stewart character thinks he witnesses um again both marked by certain pieces of missing information other than that event there's such a lack of curiosity and follow-through in the woman in the window and all of the, the different things that hitchcock ends up doing in his film right we we don't really get a sense of like her compulsion really to watch we don't get you know the the hitchcock's use of the conceit as a metaphor for movie going or for desire and all these other things that are associated with movie going uh, that's not present um, there's just a lot of things that are a part of rear window we certainly don't get a sense of community i mean we just she just stares at this one place you know we don't really get, we don't really get a larger feel for the neighborhood this is not a courtyard she's looking onto this is one screen this is a single screen rather than a multiplex you just wish there were that if you're going to do a rear window thing, one you you want you wanted to have a strong point of view, which this film does not have. I mean, you know, which Brian De Palma or somebody like that or Dario Argento, however you feel about these filmmakers, you cannot say that, they, that their point of view is weak. <laughs> I don't know. You you would want it to be a little bit more than just a device to tell. You know, it's more of a device uh, rear window here than it is like a complete conceptual follow through. I feel like there are the vaguest hints of what exactly what you're talking about in the film, given her devotion to movies and the the scene she spends rewatching a movie and uh, like reciting along with it and laughing, I think sort of is meant to speak to that image of hungering for something outside herself and and possibly seeing the world in like lurid narrative terms instead of real terms. I feel like making her a child psychiatrist is meant to kind of partially explain her engagement with Ethan and her protectiveness of him and her attempt to understand him. I just don't think that those things end up being like spelled out in any detail. It it has all the hallmarks of the book maybe is more detailed about all of these things and the movie kind of reflexively kept a bunch of them without actually exploring them meaningfully. Has anyone seen the film Copycat? Yes. Yes. And boy, did I think of Copycat a lot during uh, both the the final scene, the the big confrontation scene, and the uh, previously mentioned denouement. 
Yeah, I, I haven't, but I mean, the author has a somewhat uh, checkered history. There was a big article in the New Yorker a few years ago uh, detailing a sort of a it's, it's really worth your time to read, but his sort of life of uh, deception and uh, um, fabrication uh, about his own history and, and false claims to have survived cancer and so on and so on. But also, it'll mention in there that that you know there's a lot of similarities between his, this book, the book this, that inspired this film, and Copycat, which I haven't seen, so I can't speak to that. Oh, but, this but, is Dan Mallory who did both, aka AJ Fenn. Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, that is that is correct. Yeah, the the big beats of this movie do feel extremely like Copycat where they aren't filled in from where window uh they they felt stolen from copycat and in fact one of the uh the biggest parallels that annoyed me most most is that thing i was referencing earlier about this this taking me back to gilligan's island which yay. is just the gilligan's f- island. we're excited <laughs> let's make it let's hear it it's just the uh the the second coconut bonk theory it's it's the feeling that Somebody who's undergone an immense trauma, who's changed their life, can be fixed by another immense trauma. One would think that venturing out into the world after all this time and immediately being beaten and half drowned and nearly thrown off a building and having a rake stuck through her face would reinforce her agoraphobia, her fear of the outside, rather than cancel it out. You know, nothing has changed about the fact that she caused her husband and and child's death. Nothing has changed about the initial thing that traumatized her. So why just going through a bigger trauma just kind of go, well, no, that cancels it out. And it's the same thing with uh, with Copycat. You have a woman who experienced a, a, a traumatic, violent event who has uh, come to a place of extreme agoraphobia, which is fixed by her undergoing another gigantic uh, traumatic event. And it's like the, the Gilligan's Island. Somebody gets bonked on the head with a coconut and uh, either gets amnesia or an extreme personality change. And the only fix for that is another head, head bonk with a, another coconut. It's just... It's such shallow and ridiculous <laughs> storytelling. I, I did not expect. I thought it was like, like I said before. I thought like you know maybe you were referencing the this uh, monsoon or whatever that happens at the end. <laughs> and there was still going to be some kind of a you know you know three hour tour tour that may have gone awry <laughs> on the rooftop there. But but I, I like I, I, I my memory. I, I just I'm going to have to trust your memory of Gilligan's Island about the the coconut bunk. <laughs> <laughs> my uh my favorite thing about that too tasha is that like she gets the uh chic lady blowout <laughs> yeah like, you know you're harangued and hysterical when your hair is frizzy and big <laughs> but like you have your life together when you get a really nice blowout with those perfect end waves yeah, that's how you know Amy Adams has it together at the end. Yeah, I wish Genevieve was here for this. One of her her all-time favorite blogs slash social media presences slash personalities, uh, Tom on Lorenzo, put a, mm-hmm. a pretty hilarious tweet out there about how her, her transition from dowdy slippers to uh, screwy pumps, basically yep. to, to fabulous kicky high-heeled boots, is indicative of her healed mental state. <laughs> and whichever one of them was tweeting that was just like you know, mental mental health comes with high heels, ladies. We all know this now. Uh, it was just dripping with uh, the the kind of cattiness that makes that account and those personalities so delightful. I do. I feel like that trauma of losing her uh, husband and, and child as a result of <laughs> at her own 
that was not you know her that was her fault basically i mean i feel like that all of that would probably stick with her beyond what happens in this film right nope you get a rake through the face you're immediately forgot forgiven for killing killing your kid well, before yeah. we get a rake in the face, we should probably wind down this discussion. Any last thoughts on, 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 all right, you can see one rear window or woman in the window. Which one do you go with? I'm going to go with rear window, Keith. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think Real I, question, Keith. I think you speak for everyone. I'm going to struggle right, with um, that. Kid, do I have to watch one of them like through the curtains on the TV set of one of my neighbors across the street? <laughs> it would all, no matter how you sit, I mean, you could do it like green eggs and ham style, like any possible scenario in which you could watch rear window, you would prefer it over the most optimal viewing of the woman in the window. Well, that being said, Rear Window is available to rent through most major streaming services. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray, and I think 4K at this point, too, for the video files. Uh, The Woman in Window is currently on Netflix, and I think it'll be on Netflix forever, right? Uh, We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you? I was going to do one thing, and now I'm going to do another thing, because I had a chance recently to finally, finally, finally catch up with the film Smooth Talk with Laura Dern. Mm. And uh, I was pretty blown away by it. It is based on the Joyce Carol Oates short story, uh, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? It stars uh, Laura Dern as a teenager who is very much exploring her sexuality and running into eventually uh, this older man, Arnold Friend, I believe that is the name, uh, who uh, ends up you know exploiting that interest in a very horrifying way. It is one of those things where you you would think if you everyone's reads the story in high school everybody you know i don't you know you, you everyone reads that short story and i think you certainly would not reading it thinking think it would ever be made into a movie that it could ever be made into a movie and and what is so interesting about this film that joyce chopra has directed is that the vast majority of that story is confined to the last half hour and it's full of the sort of action that you would not, that normally you don't see in movies, uh, just like literary conceits that don't necessarily work in movies, but work beautifully in this one. And it's all because of the rest of the film, which is uh, just a great and original evocation of uh, the life of a teenage girl who really wants to explore this sort of part of herself but doesn't really recognize yet, you know, the, the dangers of, of of doing so, the perils that she might put herself in, in in doing so. And so it's very nerve wracking to watch, but also I thought done with a tremendous amount of, of, of insight. It was one of those movies that was, I've, I'd always wanted to see because it was in produced and abandoned, which was one of my favorite film anthologies growing up. That was one of the New York, that was one of the, excuse me, the National Society of Film Critics books that had uh, of movies that were like, exactly as the title implied, that were made and then nobody didn't get support or critical support or studio support and that were just kind of fell away. And I saw so many gems that way. And this was one that I'd always 
wanted to catch up with and never did until pretty recently. And it's got it's got a great sort of vintage early Laura Dern performance. And uh, it's been hanging around on Criterion Channel for a while. Now it's on Criterion generally. It made it made uh, it, you can buy it the Blu-ray. And uh, so I like it. Uh, smooth talk. Yeah, me too. It's a good mall movie too. Good eighties mall <laughs> footage in that one, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, no, and it also it's like Laura Dern's kind of like, oh, she was always that good. That was a, <laughs> a oh, great performance. Always. Except the only thing weird about the movie is it's all these James Taylor songs <laughs> for some yeah. reason. I don't know. Not not usually with something that you associate with uh, a cool teenager listening to James Taylor songs, but whatever. it's the equivalent of the America songs in uh, Last Unicorn or something. It was just <laughs> just a thing. Tasha, how about you? Uh, just briefly, um, I feel like I've already talked about this movie on this podcast where we've recorded so many of these podcasts at this point for so many years. I can't track it anymore. So I'll skim by this and get on to something more recent. But uh, whenever we're talking about who's crazy here movies, I have to shout out Bunny Lake is Missing, Otto Preminger's 1965 movie about a woman who is telling everybody that her daughter has disappeared and there is no evidence that this daughter ever existed. This movie unlike uh, Woman in the Window, more like Rear Window, does conceal information from the audience and lets the audience play along with the question of what did she see? What did she experience? What's she going through? Who should we have sympathy with here? What are we supposed to wish for here? And how is it going to play out? But it's also just a really unsettling film uh, in a lot of regards. There's a sequence in a doll hospital that I guarantee you, you will not forget if you see this movie. Uh, it's widely available on streaming services. If you're into the sort of the the rear window species of uh, what's going on here, movies, that one is a particularly strange and unsettling one. But again, I'm pretty sure I've big up to this film before because it's a longtime favorite. So in more recent uh, releases, I saw out of Sundance and more recently reviewed the documentary Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street. And that is a it's a behind the scenes movie of essentially Sesame Street's first 20 years. It does a pretty deep dive into the pre Sesame Street years, kind of taking in what the television landscape was like, especially for children's TV and the very serious educators and scholars who sat down and said, well, you know, how can we reach kids, particularly inner city kids that don't have the same advantage as their uh, like more wealthy suburban peers? How can we engage them with this exciting new media called television? How can we weaponize it as an educational tool? Back when that was a big question, back when People didn't think of TV as uh, something that could be used for educational purposes. And watching them put together the idea that, that became Sesame Street is fascinating because, you know, I consider myself a fan of uh, Jim Henson and the Muppets, and I thought I knew the, the vague parameters, but it turns out what I knew was his part of the story from interviews with, with people who worked with him, from reading books about him. There's a lot of story there that has nothing to do with Jim Henson. And the perspective where Jim Henson comes on board and the people who are actually making Sesame Street say, who is this weird, long haired, like leather jacketed hippie? And can we really work with him? Is this a good idea? It's just fascinating. It's full of little snippet stories that the movie just doesn't have time to explore. It's basically just like 
full of little hooks that you can kind of follow your own internet rabbit trails down as a particular songwriter is brought up and, and interviewed. And man, is it a, an entertaining little, little ride. And there's just so much footage behind the scenes of uh, people writing and people talking about how like this is these are the, their glory years. This is the best time that they're ever going to have in their life. Uh, there's so much, you know, puppeteers under the table uh, with these these felt socks with eyeballs on them uh, sticking up above the table for people who have an affection for Sesame Street. Uh, street gang how we got to sesame street it's just it's a real trip it's really educational kind of like the tv that they made yeah it's a good one i like that one too could have been longer but you but you can, it does kind of give you send you different places to go to have you have you read the book tasha i have not i i definitely think it's probably going to have like more of the detail that i want i should say yeah. that it's still in in theaters and in like prime uh, VOD viewing. So it's like 20 bucks and people may want to either see it in theaters or hold out until they can uh, to rent it for cheaper. But that, that day is coming. Just, you know, I think it's going to be on HBO Max later this year. I'm not sure. When, yeah, uh, certainly will. It's It was an HBO uh, funded documentary. You know, they have the rights to Sesame Street. So I, I strongly suspect that they decided to do it because they had access to and, and the rights to all of this old archival material. So you can hold out for HBO Max or you can hold out for cheaper VOD, but one way or the other, you'll have an option to watch it. And Keith, what about you? I recently wrote a piece tied to the launch of a new streaming service because we need more streaming services, yeah. right? Uh, but it's a good one called BFI Player Classics, which is the British Film Institute streaming service making its American debut. And for Vulture, a forthcoming piece, I kind of wrote about some perhaps under the radar titles that Americans don't know as well. Uh, and it was a chance to educate myself and see a few films I had not seen before, including uh, a delightful film called Passport to Pimlico, which is, I've been meaning to watch for years. Uh, that's not my pick, though. Uh, I'm going to steer viewers toward a film that I had uh, missed, uh, but was delighted to catch up with. It's a very strange film from 1970 called The Man Who Haunted Himself, uh, starring Roger Moore, uh, made in the years between Roger when Roger Moore was a saint and James Bond. He plays, as you would expect of Roger Moore, a buttoned-down, repressed, conservative uh, suburbanite um, who, in the film's opening sequence, inexplicably uh, unbuckles his seatbelt and starts driving recklessly and gets in a horrible car accident, only to die on the operating table, then not die on the operating table and and, and pretty much pick up his life as le he left it, except he keeps hearing stories about the great time he had at the at, you know playing uh playing snooker the other night and and uh this woman who seems to think they're having some kind of affair and he eventually catches on that there's some other doppelganger out there having a better time being uh, hit, uh being him than he is so it's a neat little supernatural story it probably you know you can probably see the twist coming by my description of this film, but but it's it's done with a lot of a lot of atmosphere by um, this veteran uh, British director named Basil Dearden, who uh, died not long after it was released. But um, it's kind of a uh, it's 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 if it doesn't already have a cult following, maybe this release uh, on the streaming service BFI Streaming Classics will change that. If not, it's it's worth poking around because there's a lot of stuff you can get elsewhere there, like Third Man, Booker Man, Man Who Fell to Earth, a lot of really canonical British films but there's a lot of stuff i had never heard of i don't think it was available uh elsewhere i saw a neat 45 minute documentary called the london nobody knows in which james mason kind of wanders around and looks at old victorian toilets and stuff like that uh so it's good stuff it's a neat service what's the um, name again 
Uh, the, the, the film is The Man Who Haunted Himself, um, starring Roger Moore. Um, and the service is called BFI Streaming Classics. Uh, BFI Player streaming sorry or one of those whatever look up bfi you'll find it uh roxana how about you my pick is the new movie from the first saudi arabian female film director haifa al mansur and her new film is called the perfect candidate and um it takes her narrative back to saudi arabia her big breakout was 2012's wajda which followed a young girl who dreamed of owning a bicycle as a small measure of freedom in a largely conservative society. And The Perfect Candidate is sort of playing again within those same themes. It follows a young female doctor who um, is the only doctor at this emergency clinic in a certain region. And the road that leads to this clinic is unpaved and they always have water leaks and always becomes this muddy, terrible mess. Uh, so Miriam, who is played by, I think her name is Mila Al-Zarahni. Um, so Miriam decides that she wants to run for city council to get the road paved. And somewhat similar to Haifa Al-Mansur's own story, uh, Miriam is the first female candidate for city council in her town. She is battling a sort of patriarchal traditionalist society that doesn't necessarily think that there should be female representation in their government. And I thought it did a really thoughtful job of showing the interior lives of Saudi Arabian families, because it's not just Miriam who is sort of bucking against the traditional trend. Her father, who is a musician, while she decides to run for city council, he goes on a tour with his band to play their sort of traditional folk music in public, which is also sort of a taboo in this culture. So it follows both of them as they're sort of fighting against sort of stereotypical expectations. And I thought it was just a very satisfying, also sort of bittersweet film that gave us a glimpse into a culture that, again, we might not necessarily know a lot about. That is playing, I believe it is in limited release in theaters now, and then eventually should make its way into digital rental. So apparently, if you're in Britain, it's already on uh, Britain's Amazon Prime Video uh, for subscribers. Oh, okay. So that's that's an interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, I think it, it played festivals already, um, and then sort of took a little bit to get U.S. distribution. But, uh, I mean, plan a trip, I guess, to the UK. Now the <laughs> pandemic's obviously over. And go see this movie, obviously. It was really, really celebrated out of those festivals. It seemed like one of the uh, the, the little breakouts of kind of the last festival season in terms of uh, people appreciating it. Uh, given how engaged I was with Wajida, I, like, I've been looking forward to the chance to see this film. So I'm glad to hear it she measures up. something between those films too, right? That wasn't as successful? She did two, yeah, she did two films outside of Saudi Arabia. She did Mary Shelley, which was That's with right. Elle Fanning, and then she did Napoli Ever After, which I think was with Sunia Lathan. And that was on Netflix. Okay. So she, yeah, she has done some other stuff. And this is sort of her return to telling a story about Saudi Arabian women again. Have you seen Napoli Ever After? 
I haven't. It's been on my queue for like a million years. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens with Netflix movies is there's sort of that feeling of it'll be there whenever I get around to it. I'm mostly just wondering because it seems like it's going to be the easiest one for people to access. And I'm wondering if it's going to like let them down in terms of uh, what she's doing in her kind of her more personal stories. I thought that it was pretty well reviewed. I think it was one of those like quiet Netflix releases that people liked, but in typical Netflix fashion got sort of buried. But, you know, she's always sort of telling uh, female stories and female perspectives. And so I think if you liked Napoli Ever After, after watching it on Netflix, I don't think either of her, you know, Middle East set films would be too much of a swerve. Yeah, I saw the trailer for that and it looked looked good. I think we all have offered up some some pretty good selections here. We'll be right back after the break. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out June 8th and June 15th. Scott, what do we have on tap? In the new Australian thriller The Dry, Eric Bana stars as a federal agent who returns to his hometown after 20-plus years away to attend the funeral of a childhood friend who allegedly killed his wife, his young son, and himself. The main reason Bana's character has been gone so long is that many in the town suspect him of drowning a classmate he was romantically involved with in their late teens. Plagued by a drought that's turned it into a tinderbox, the rural landscape around the town becomes another character a reminder of a death-haunted past and a tenuous present. This aspect of the dry recalled one of the seminal classics of the Australia New Wave, Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, a turn-of-the-century historical drama about the mysterious disappearance of three students and a schoolteacher on a rural summer picnic and the survivors who reckon with that loss. So please join us on a journey to the other side of the world, or, if you live in Australia, home, for an all-Aussie edition of The Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Rear Window, The Woman in the Window, other window movies maybe, and anything else film-related that you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times and uh, the Guardian, uh, Vulture, uh, The Ringer, uh, other fine publications. I'm also the editor and chief of Oscilloscope's Musings, Tasha. I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can occasionally find my work there. You can also find uh, such wonderful contributors as uh, Keith Phipps and uh, Roxana. Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, going on over on Polygon, and uh, we, we like to keep it in the family. Uh, Roxana, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Roxana underscore Haddadi, and you can find my work at Polygon and Vulture, the AV Club, Pajiba, Crooked Marquee, various other places that will tolerate me so find it on twitter go from there keith please where can we find you <laughs> uh, yeah same situation as you you can find i'm a freelance writer you can find my uh you can find me on twitter at kfips3000 uh, where i will direct you to pieces in places like uh vulture uh gq polygon uh tv guide and and other fine publications our absent co-host genevieve koski is a tv editor at vulture uh you can find her on twitter at 
Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan, the Bake Jakes, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.